How well do your neighbors know you? I venture to say, probably better than you think. They know a lot about me, I can tell, especially now that the windows are open in the summertime. Know a lot about our family. They know the car I drive. They know when I'm on vacation. Uh, one winter, a couple of years ago, we went away without telling our, our neighbors that we were going on vacation. And uh, we came back after a snowstorm and realized that uh, our neighbors thought something terrible had happened to us because our, our driveway was still unshoveled. They had called the police and just poked inside and just or looked out through the window to, to make sure that we were okay. Your neighbors know a lot about you. They know that the last few weeks have been rather busy because the grass in my yard is about knee high. And they can tell that our family loves each other because they see it and hear it in all sorts of goofy and lame ways. Do our neighbors know us? Do our neighbors know us as a community of God? Do they know us as what it means to be this church community that loves each other. We're called to be a church, not simply as individuals to go out and love others and to love our neighbors, but to actually act as though this community meant something. We need to express it in such a way that it is seen and felt. We need a little bit more PDA. Is that still even a term that people use? It used to be a term when I was a kid, right? PDA, public displays of affection. When we heard in 1 John that they will know us by our love, that they, that that idea means and requires that that love is felt and seen and heard. That there's a public quality to it. And that is a central message that we get in our passage here. For we see one of the greatest examples of love in all of the Bible. The love that Jonathan expresses toward David is beautiful and challenging and unfortunately does not get the attention that it deserves. But when it's rightly understood, I believe it's calling us as an example to follow. I think we're called to to follow Jonathan's exemplary love towards David because it is exemplary Christian love. It comes from a heart that understands the redemption bought by Christ. It comes from a covenant experience of a God who has loved and satisfied him deeply. And so we need to look again at this love. But this love needs to be put into context. We need to see that it's part of a greater story, not just of 1 Samuel, but of the entire Scripture. So let's turn again to this passage and look at this love. Will you pray with me? Father, please bless our reading of this um, and our understanding. We know that um, it's so often that we take things out of context and we don't understand. Um, Challenge us, Lord, with your word and help us to um, sit under it and to be uh, transformed by it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I love contrast, um, especially as I'm trying to learn a concept. 
Um, just don't give me the positive example. Um, also, show me the negative so that I can tell where the edges are, tell the difference. And that's exactly what we have here in chapter 18. The story teaches us by way of contrast. And, and although Jonathan, I mean, as, although David sort of runs all the way through this chapter, uh, he's mentioned many times, the contrast doesn't involve him, or not directly. The contrast is between Saul and Jonathan, between father and son. And it's a contrast in how they respond to David. Saul, we see for the first time developing an anger. In fact, it escalates quite quickly. An anger towards David and all that he does and represents. Saul can tell that that David is now favored by God and that Saul is not. It becomes so much in his face that it, it boils over to a real bitterness. Three times, He gets to witness and see, as we read this chapter, three times it says that God is with David. An additional four times, whenever it's describing David, uses the term success. David is full of success. And then six times we're told in this passage that David is loved. Women are singing about it. People are dancing in the street and they're celebrating. And Saul boils. We know, because we've seen earlier in this book, that David has been secretly anointed. That means that he is going to be the next king. The prophet Samuel has already signified that. And we saw in that chapter, in chapter 16, that at that time, the Spirit of God rushed upon David. And that Spirit, as we saw in that sermon a couple of weeks ago, was a way that everybody could tell that David now was empowered to do God's work. David was especially uh, anointed by this Spirit. It wasn't just the Spirit that Uh, that dwells on all Christians, Old and New Testament, it was a special empowering that said to all people in Israel, look to David, he's the guy to follow. And conversely, we saw in that chapter that Saul, because of his failures, because his turning away from God, was giving a harmful spirit. Now this harmful spirit shows up again in our passage in verse 10. It's not an indication that Saul was particularly evil. It's not an indication that Saul was going to hell. But it was an indication to everyone around him that God had rejected his kingship. That the erratic behavior, that the things that showed faithlessness all around to everybody said that he is not the anointed or favored one by God. That they should be drawing their eyes to God's new man, David. So Saul's jealousy increases. We see the anger that he expresses here. He hurls a spear at David. He plots so that the Philistines would kill David. Verse 15 just summarizes it, saying that Saul saw David's great success, and he stood in fearful awe of him. And that response to David takes up the great amount of this 
chapter. But our chapter really begins with a very small but very tight and powerful picture of another response to David. And that's the response of Jonathan. Jonathan loves David. He deeply loves him. And in fact, he loves him to such a great extent that it has drawn many interpreters to start speculating that maybe that love was a little more than just friendship. Maybe it was a little bit more than admiration. Despite there is no record of a relationship that is sexual or romantic in the passages that include this relationship, if you just take them alone, if you just look at them isolated, it is quite a compelling case. And so I, I want us to touch on that briefly now and talk about that interpretation. It's not going to take up the whole of the sermon, but it's important to, to look at. If we, just, if we just take some of these passages on their own, it is a very compelling case. Verse 1 says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Two verses later, They make a covenant with each other. It says this covenant was because of their love. Going a little further, verse 4, Jonathan takes his clothes off. Uncomfortable yet? In 20, they kiss. And then at Jonathan's death, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David David says of Jonathan, that his love surpasses the love of women. Eugene Robinson, who was the first openly gay bishop of any denomination, points to this passage and says that it becomes a pivotal way that the Bible uh, asserts an approval of homosexuality. His book is really interesting. And because his argument says, essentially, that every other place undoubtedly shows that this is uh, the action of homosexuality is considered sin. See, Robinson doesn't deny Leviticus 18 or, or Leviticus 20 or Romans 1. He agrees that, that the behavior clearly stands against God's law. But he argues that by including this story, that God is giving another message, a message that says, Love wins. Love triumphs over God's law. But I want us to think about that. Can there be a tension between God's law and God's love? Because nowhere else in Scripture on any other topic is there ever a tension between God's law and God's love. Even at the Gospel, when it talks about God's forgiveness all throughout Scripture, even when Paul wants to contrast in Galatians God's law and the, the love that's found for every Christian. It's never a tension because Jesus Christ has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His death on the cross is something that doesn't ignore God's law, but is actually a satisfaction for God's justice. There's never a tension. Never a tension between God's love and his law. But I want us to dig a little deeper. I want to raise the question why this interpretation has become prominent, because it actually has. Some of you may know this. 
that, that this story, this particular relationship that these two have, has become almost synonymous with the Bible's depiction of a homosexual relationship. It is uh, the, the term used for a Catholic fellowship um, that, that is openly gay. But this interpretation has only come about in late 20th century. In fact, the first to really gain any traction was, was written in 1978. So why so late? Why did it take the church so long to connect the dots? Well, one answer, I believe, is that we view the world through different eyes than previous generations. We are heavily influenced by, by key ideas that were planted over a century ago. I want us to think about a term that we use today almost as, as commonly as we use almost any categorization of a person. And that's this term, sexual orientation. It's a specific concept that is pervasive. And it's hard to fathom that this is actually a new concept. But it was developed by Sigmund Freud. Freud sought to ex- suppress and replace the biblical category of identity as being made in the image of God in his way to put in place a psychological category so that we now know that deep in our identity there's a different motivation for us. He puts sexual identity as the core of the human identity, saying that that's the foundational drive that determines and defines who you are. The sexual orientation must then encompass every fiber of a person's selfhood. In her book, Openness Unhindered, um, Rosaria Butterfield, herself called to Christ out of a lesbian relationship, uh, pinpoints this idea as a way that has very subtly and very slowly radically shaped our culture. She writes, sexuality moved from a verb, practice, to a noun people. And with this grammatical move, a new concept of humanity was born. The idea that we're oriented or framed, like our whole life is framed by our sexual desires. That our differing sexual desires and different objects of desires made up separate species of people. And that self-representation and identity rooted now in sexual orientation and not in the purposes of God for his image bearers. You see, that is such a a dangerous move. The subtle shift of of, uh, grammar, as she says. It is the tie to almost every idolatry whenever something in our life becomes synonymous with who we are and our identity, making us a separate person. And sadly, the church, in many cases, has just accepted this shift. Accepted the shift of viewing, uh, going from practice to people. And the results have been disastrous. Because there have been many sincere Christians who want to maintain what they feel is a unbib- uh, rejection of an unbiblical sexual act, what they wound up doing because of this shift is rejecting people. And once the church agreed to allow sexual orientation to be our defining identity, they made the unbiblical move of excluding people from the gospel of grace. Do you understand that? Once we move 
into def- def- start dividing up people as different species based on something else other than the fact that you're created in the image of God, then we've really made a dangerous move because all of a sudden we have now excluded people as bad. We've cut them off from the gospel. It's no wonder that many Christians today waver on this issue because they know deep down that rejecting people does not fit the gospel. It's a move that didn't just make sin unpardonable, it made certain people unpardonable. If you're here today, and if you felt the sting of of the church rejecting you as unpardonable, I'm sorry. That is not the gospel. I want you to know there is nothing that disqualifies you. Nothing disqualifies you from what Christ is offering. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for you, not because you have it all together. Christ died for you, not because you're a particularly good person. It's not that you're a good person in the right category who's done some wrong things. Christ died for you in spite of the fact that you and me and every living person has a problem. That sin is not just the things that we do, but but sin has now creeped into our nature. And it spills out of our hearts. And it continually bends us away from God, every one of us. It's to those people, which is the human race, that Christ has come and died. And if this issue has become a particularly significant issue for you, let's talk. Let's not let the sermon be the thing that defines it. One sermon will never be able to do that. But let it start the conversation, okay? Let's, let's continue it. Let's talk this week. There's a text number up there. Just text. I get that message. We can talk. But when we let sexual orientation become our defining identity, then all of us lose. There's one writer that asserts that heterosexuals have the most to lose with this move. He writes, if homosexuality binds us to sin, then heterosexuality blinds us to sin. You see, once we divided up people into groups, then we, if, um, we give the false impression that heterosexual people actually don't have deep sin issues. on that issue or anything else. You know, it's the frustration you might do preaching to a a group of people who um, believe that they're Christians on no other ground than that they are Americans. Or that their grandparents had gone to church at one time. And that's the most dangerous place to be, is to think that you actually are in the okay when there is no warning of the danger that you are in. Our identity is not defined by psychology. Our identity is not defined by biology. God wants to say you have a much greater dignity and worth. You were created in the image of God. By elevating sex as our foundational drive, what we do is minimize love and any expression of love because somehow our expressions of love have to fit into this a fundamental drive and have to relate to it in some way. 
And what that does is make us shrink away from all expressions of love because we don't want it to be categorized wrongly. That really has warped us. We need to be able to show expressions of love to, it doesn't matter, male or female. We need to be able to draw close to people because we want to spend time with them. We want to be able to serve them. To express love to them. Why? Because that, those things are things that derive from our being as image bearers of a holy God. This depiction of David and Jonathan shows us that uh, a love that can happen between two people is a love that is explicitly derived from redemption, explicitly derived from what Christ has done. When we simply shrink this down to being romance, we miss out. It's unsatisfying. And frankly, it offers us no challenge. We could sit by and watch it as a nice vignette or a nice story, but it has no impact in your lives. So the first thing I want us to draw attention to here is that we need to bring this expression of love and, in fact, all expressions of love out from the world that traces everything back to sexual identity and into the context of what we see here. For we will never understand Jonathan's love or even Saul's anger until we actually fit chapter 18 into the context of chapter 17. Their response, both Saul and David, in fact, the response of everybody in this chapter, is all a response to David. David is not simply lovable to some and hated by others. Their response is to David as the anointed one who actually performed what he performed in in chapter 17, which is the victory over Goliath. You see what happened to David in in that chapter? He puts himself into the role of all of Israel. He puts his life on the line, not for himself, but for all God's people. And he fights a battle on their behalf. It is essentially a Christ-like act. David is being God's instrument through which God rescues all of Israel. It's not a disconnected story about two individuals. It's a response to David's act of of salvation. Jonathan responds in love. Saul responds in bitterness. David here stands not simply for Christ, although we need to understand that. Part of what he stands for here is God's redemptive act and God's anointed one. But he also stands for all those in covenant relationships. David is the anointed one who God uses to rescue. But he's also a a fellow recipient of covenant blessings. So when we're called to examine these responses to David, it's it's the responses, really, of our response to God and our response to each other that we're drawn to look at here. I want to focus on three aspects of this love. Three aspects exemplified by Jonathan, but denied by Saul. They are sacrificial love, committed love, and expressive love. Sacrificial, committed, and expressive. 
Let's look at that first one. Jonathan's love is self-sacrificial, while Saul's is self-serving. If we just settle to see this as a romance in verse 4, we sadly miss the beauty of the love that Jonathan is really expressing here. It's quite profound. For Jonathan takes off his robe and his armor and his sword, and he gives it to David. Now, clothing had a value in the ancient world, and especially in this context, that we don't have today. The robe, in particular, was a sign of office. There are lots of people who wonder why in the world we, as a church, have the preachers wear a robe like this. But it's the same reason. We do this not simply because we like to harken back to some old um, you know, tradition uh, or because somehow you're ashamed of the way I dress and want to just cover it over, perhaps hoping I'll catch fire one of these days when I'm trying to make a point over the candle. You know how often I think about that. There is a fire extinguisher under the pulpit, by the way. Let your mind at ease. But we wear these robes to signify that I'm not just here having my dear Abby moment. That I'm doling out wisdom for my accrued years to tell you really how to live. That's not the purpose. You know, if you come here to hear my wisdom, please get up and leave. You need to find better sources. No, I wear the robe because it signifies that I'm up here not myself. I'm up here representing an office that God called me to. And so I preach not my own words, but the text. And not in any context, but to you, the people I'm called to shepherd. That that way, when you see this robe, you know that what you're hearing actually sits under authority. Authority that comes from a presbytery that oversees me and a general assembly, the denomination, people that have some checks and balances. But also to know that I take that seriously. So much so that if I was to take this robe off, some of you should start saying, okay, wow, what's happening here? Is he just quitting? (laughs) That's the significance of it. Now put that into the context of what Jonathan is doing here. Who is Jonathan? Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He is the son of the king. The whole kingdom lies before him, is his. And he, unlike his father, who repeatedly failed, in his faithfulness, everything we see about Jonathan is remarkable. Remarkable in its faithfulness. We didn't cover the chapter, I think it's chapter 14, but throughout, Jonathan fights battles in a heroic fashion, taking on 20 people by himself and defeats them. And the text is very clear to say he does it in a way that's faithful. But we had already seen that, Jonathan, that Saul's failure Not only had him rejected as king, but his line. Jonathan sees David respond to God's call, defeating Goliath in the previous chapter. He can tell that he's filled with the spear. He can tell that he is God's man. Jonathan takes the mantle off. Another translation could say, Jonathan took his crown from his head and put it on David's head. Because he understood that was the source of the way that he could love. He understood that, that he was fulfilled and satisfied by all of what God has done. 
That's the love we need to emulate. That's the love we need to see. How do we love like that? We have a big problem because when it's, when it's not family love, or when it's not romantic love, we don't really know a lot about self-sacrificial love. In family of love, we get it. If you ever uh, cared for a young child, you don't all the, all the time bring up your rights to the child. You don't hold the little baby and say, you know what, I've worked hard, and uh, you, you're keeping me up, and uh, you know I, I deserve, I have my rights, and I deserve eight hours of sleep. We sacrifice because we love. But in other relationships, we often treat it in very consumeristic terms. What can you give to me? And so we either view people as higher than us and we envy them or lower than us and we despise them. Someone lower than us, we think, well, what, what can they add to us? I'm not going to sacrifice for them because they're not, I'm not going to get anything in return. Somebody above us, we envy them and they say, well, I'm going to use you to get my self-worth. And so if I self-sacrifice, you're not going to love me. Or I'm, it's going to go counterintuitive to actually what I want, which is to be built up. But how can Jonathan build up David? How can he love David and it still cost himself? Well, he can only do it because his image, his, his identity, his self-worth is rooted in the fact that God has already delivered him. God has delivered him through the act that he had seen in the, in the chapter before. God had already promised that he would save this people. And so he gave Jonathan a self-worth, a dignity, and even a glory that no crown would ever provide. He found something far greater and more significant than the kingdom of Israel. He found being a servant in the kingdom of God was greater than the kingdom, being the king of the kingdom of, of any nation. And so Jonathan can love David to the point of giving him everything. Saul, in contrast, sees David's success, and he doesn't account it as a blessing to him. Rather, Saul sees this success, and he becomes himself bitter. Jealous, hate-filled. He sees David's success as a personal attack on him. He hears the women singing. Saul has defeated his thousands, David his ten thousands. Now, one of the first things they ever teach you about Hebrew poetry is that a two-line song like this is never meant to give out extra details. It's It's mostly just for emphasis. So if you were to really translate this song that the women are singing, it was that both Saul and David killed lots of people and they both deserve honor. But, you see, Saul reads into it. He reads into it offense. He cannot respond selflessly. He has a lack of acceptance and love. He must hate any honor that's given to someone else. He fears the success of someone else. Are you there? Do you know that? Do you know what it's like to be jealous in that way when someone else is successful and approved? The feeling like you need to establish your own identity and your own worth so much so that everything becomes a competition? 
Richard Lovelace, uh, puts it like this. People who no longer are sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other culture style, cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge and suppress their anger. Saul schemes to kill David because of this. But he doesn't want to do it himself. So he thinks to himself, if I kill David myself, I'm going to get worse because everybody loves David. So he's going to have the Philistines do this. He orders David, or, or maybe holds out a reward to David, that if he kills a hundred Philistines, he will allow him to marry uh, his daughter. In some twisted, you know, Bond-like villain scenario here, Saul has devised this in only a way that could completely backfire in a horrible way. He wants, he wants David to be eliminated. And so he thinks he can do this by uh, sending him off to war. But what happens? In God's beautiful irony, David doesn't, doesn't just kill 100 Philistines. He kills 200. So his fame grows greater. And now instead of uh, avoiding him and killing him, he now brings him in as his son-in-law and makes him an heir to the throne. Everything he tried to accomplish becomes the exact opposite. No, he has fallen victim to what God's plan is. Whenever we try on our own, experiencing that insecurity and defensiveness, we're going to wind up like Saul, alone and isolated. We need to see Jonathan's love. It moves us to the second point. Jonathan's love is not just self-giving, it's also committed Saul's love by, or response, by contrast, is fickle and manipulative. Verse 1 tells us the soul of Jonathan is knit to David's. In verse 3, we're told that they make this covenant with each other. Now, covenant is a strange idea for people who aren't married or people that don't have some legal agreement with each other. In most of our experience of friendship, what happens when your friendship goes south? What happens if you start arguing with each other? I don't think any one of us typically responds by going to see a counselor. We simply let the relationship fade away. Yet God's love doesn't operate like this. God doesn't lose the connection. He commits and he binds himself to us. There's never a time in all of human history where God does not relate to his people by way of making a highly committed relationship with them. That commitment in the Bible is called a covenant. Covenants are more than legal obligations. If you know covenant only as a legal promise, it's more than that. It is an expression of love. And it also gives shape to love. And this is why I think um, there is a great crisis facing the church. I think one of the greatest crises facing the church today is not the decline in church membership. It's the decline in the concept 
of church membership. You see, there are plenty of churches that are busting at the seams, but they don't have any concept of actual commitment. And so there's no definition to the love that's there, either their love for Christ or their love for one another. There's no way for them to express it. They have no incentive to work out disagreements. There's no way that they can overcome problems. But loving relationships demand commitment. I know we fear commitment, but but do you ever have any real love, any significant love without commitment? Jeremy Clive Higgins, in a really remarkable um, from a blog post that he wrote, said, all people I I love, I trust, I want to be around, all of them answer with varying volume yes to the following basic question. Will you be there for me? Real loving community is the place where you know they will be there for you. Cheering your achievements Concerned when something bad happens. Worried when you don't show up. That is what love looks like. And that can only happen when there's a commitment. If our relationship with Christ is casual, you will never feel that love. If your relationship with the body of Christ is casual, you're never going to experience a love of Christ working through his body. This is what Jonathan does in his relationship. Built upon this love, he commits. They covenant together. Saul, on the the other hand, to contrast it, is fickle. He sees relationships not as ones to commit to, but ones to manipulate. He gives his daughter, uh, and then he takes her back. He gives her next daughter, and he uses her to manipulate. He's using them to get what he wants. But again, he finds himself empty in the end. Thirdly, Jonathan's love is expressive. His heart is poured forth. This is the theme throughout this relationship. They're said to love each other. Chapter 20, they're said to kiss. 2 Samuel 1 says that that David's able to, to reply that the love that Jonathan has is love better than a woman. Again, to clarify, there's nothing that implies romance here. We need to train ourselves to think in their cultural terms, not our cultural terms. In the Bible, love is never used as a euphemism for sex. It never is. There's never a time where it says in there that they made love to each other. When we come across the word love here in the Bible... It's used for many different types of relationships, so often in family contexts. The line about Jonathan's love being better than that of a woman also only makes sense if we put it into the context. We see this context. Michael uh, is not a great wife. He, in, in, or she, in, in chapter uh, 20, or actually chapter 19, sells out David, throws him under the bus, rejecting him in favor of um, pleasing her father. If we look at David's other relationships with women, they are disastrous. They are the temptation that leads him to sin. 
Jonathan, again and again, shows a love that is faithful, that points to, to God and God's covenant love again and again. He is a, a godly, stable, constant in David's life. Likewise, if we look at their experience of kissing, almost always in the Bible, that is an expression not of romance, but of family love. We rarely actually see kissing in the Bible between two people who are romantically in love with each other, although it's present. But one thinks of the, the prodigal father rushing out to see his son. And what does the text say? It says that the father fell on his son's neck and kissed him up. When Paul wants to tell a church that they need to express the love for each other like a, a family love, he says you need to greet each other with a holy kiss. The point is not that Paul's trying to play matchmaker. He's trying to get them to act like a family. Jonathan is not shy about expressing his deep affection to David. And we need to learn from this. And following our pattern, it's an expression of how we love God and how we love each other. We need to be expressive in both of those. His love here is a response to David's redemptive love. Jonathan receives it. He embraces it. And it sets his heart free so that he can act. Saul is not able to express this deep affection. His heart is only producing anger and jealousy. I fear really deeply that we have lost this expressive love. I fear we've lost our expressive love toward God. Oftentimes it comes because we see too many bad examples of Christianity where emotion, especially love emotion, gets manipulated. But that can't be a reason why we shrink away from it. I think about the way we sing songs. I love theological songs, but they should never be pitted against or over a songs that are expressive of love. I'm not going to apologize for enjoying choruses that are repetitive. Because sometimes my love is repetitive and simple. Expressiveness flows from a heart that's fully embraced the gospel. Is your love toward Christ the same as, as the writer of the gospel of John? Well, John, throughout that gospel, doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Is that how you're able to refer to yourself? the beloved Christian? You think about that song we sung earlier. What a friend we have in Jesus. Do you know that relationship with him? It needs to have intimacy and expressive love. Are you able to, like John, just desire to rest your head on his breast because you want to be close to him, because you want to show affection? Can we have an expressiveness toward each other? Now that's going to look different. One view of expressive love doesn't match everybody's heart. I deal with this in marriage counseling all the time when people are frustrated at the fact that they don't feel their spouse or their uh, fiancé is loving them. And so we need to talk about love languages because uh, he's over there wanting to have a deep time with the other person and, and she's over there trying to think, well, I express love in gifts and I'm trying to plan out the best gift for him. You know, they, they're missing each other because they don't understand it. It's, yes, 
There's lots of different expressions of love. But one thing it's not is withdrawal. One thing it's not is pulling away. Look, I confess, I am not the most expressive person in love. I'm not the most expressive person in public. But I think that we as a church are weaker for it because you don't feel the love of Christ from me as much that way. You don't know that affection that can come that Christ uses in the body. We need to be able to express that more with each other so the watching world can look and see. Think about what it looks like to embrace this call to love like Jonathan, to be self-sacrificial, to be committed, and to be expressive. What would it say to a watching world to see relationships that, that aren't derived by these fundamental drives, but are derived by a gospel that sets us free? Not about consumerism or about sexuality, but about a satisfied identity that produces all sorts of freedom to be able to express Love at great cost and commitment. Only when we're satisfied in God's love can we answer the things that drive us away from this love. Only when we're satisfied with God's love can we start to value hospitality over our own privacy. Only when we know this can we start to value generosity over the demands of our work. Only when we're satisfied in God's love can we answer the busyness of our lives that tell us that we've got to deprioritize relationships to get to the things that really matter. We love because we have this new identity. It's not because we're special or somehow better than others. It's an, adopt, it's an adopted identity given to us, but that drives us. Done right, all those around us should be jealous of the love that we can express here. And it's a love not coming from us, but a love that we know because he first loved us. Let's pray.